Welcome to episode number 74 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about a case study of a sawdust and wood chip storage silo explosion where insufficient venting led to a fatality. So this investigation in this case study comes from a paper that is entitled Silo Explosion from Smoldering Combustion, a case study. That's by Dr. Paula Russo and her colleagues, and it's published in the Canadian Journal of Chemical Engineering in March 2017, and that's volume 95, pages 1,721 to 1,729, so 1721 to 1729. This incident was actually covered as well by Enrico Danzi at the Dust Safety Conference 2020, and that's available inside the Dust Safety Academy platform. You can see all the images of this incident and what happened to the silo um, and his assessment of the process that led up to this explosion as well. So in this podcast episode, we're going to talk about the type of the facility and the silo layout. We're going to talk about the incident sequence, what actually happened on the day where the incident occurred. We're going to talk about the analysis completed by Russo and her colleagues. Uh, we're going to highlight the serious issues that they had with deflagration venting. The silo was properly protected or was protected with deflagration venting, but the whole roof actually blew off of the silo. The, the vents did not work as planned. And we're going to close out with some, some key lessons from this disaster. In this explosion, four firefighters were injured on site. One of those fell off a four-meter-high scaffolding or four-meter-high access platform that he's using to access one of the, the manholes to empty out the silo when the explosion happened. And unfortunately, that individual uh, later passed away in the hospital from the injuries they sustained during this deflagration. So by way of background, this was a carpentry facility. And as part of that, it had two sawdust and wood chip storage silos that the material from the carpentry was was pneumatically conveyed into. Both of the silos had two sections. They had a lower part that was 12.8 meters tall with a diameter of 5 meters. And then a, an upper part that was 9.3 meters tall with a diameter of 6 meters. So you see the silos, they had a, a smaller lower part and a larger um, upper section. They were bolted plate and shell style silos, so they had metal shells going around the outside. Um, those were bolted in place together. There was a bag house and a filter system on top of the silos as well. Inside the silo, there was a large vertical screw, which drew material down into the rotary valve, and that was discharged and went to a thermal power plant that was used on site at the carpentry. As I mentioned at the onset, the silos did have deflagration venting supplied in a ring around the top section of the silo. The day of the explosion, around 7 a.m., workers noticed smoke and flames from the bottom of the silo. They called the fire brigade, who came immediately. The ventilation system was switched off, and they worked to close off the silo. Water jets were applied to the external outside of the silo to cool it down. Um, Then water jets were applied to the fire inside, or attempt to apply to the fire inside, from a manhole at the top of the silo. The manhole at the bottom of the silo was open in order to discharge the burnt material or the expended material. Uh, it was believed this caused a chimney effect, which then drew oxygen and air through the top manholes down through the bottom, and that's what oxygenated the silo. It actually encouraged the smoldering combustion that was going on inside uh, more than stopped it. Two hours after the fire departments arrived, there was a strong explosion. The roof of the silo blew off. The whole top section, actually, with the bag hoses inside, blew off. Uh, most of this land on the roof of the carpentry. And during that, the bolted plates were ripped open. There's some really 
devastating images in the paper that we mentioned by uh, Dr. Russo and her colleagues, and also in this presentation by Enrico um, Danzi at the, the Dust Safety Conference, where they show the, the state of the silo after the explosion. It's quite severe. basically looks like if you took a Pringles can and, and stepped on it, kind of squished it out from the sides and just broke into pieces. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, the outcome of these explosions, four firefighters were injured and, and one passed away due to the injuries they sustained during the explosion. In their analysis, Russo and her colleagues used computer modeling of four different scenarios to try to determine what happened in terms of how strong the explosion was and then what the likely cause of that was. And they found the most likely case was that pyrolysis gases from the smoldering combustion built up in the upper section of the silo ignited, and then this is what caused the explosion that destroyed the upper section and, and most of the silo itself. Enrico, in his presentation at the Dust Safety Conference, which again is available inside the Dust Safety Academy platform, mentions that a dust explosion is possible, but not very likely in this case, because the material was really tightly compacted at the bottom two meters of the silo. He also mentioned that a hybrid explosion um, of paralysis gases and dust is also possible. They found the ignition source for the smoldering combustion, or the the flaming combustion actually inside the silo, was from the vertical screw. It had snapped and heated up during that process, and that's what caused the original fire that the firefighters were there attacking the silo fire from. So I mentioned there's some issues with deflagration venting in this case. There were vents located in a ring around the upper part of the silo, um, but there's some issues here. And the first problem was that the vents were actually located behind bag filters, or the bag filters had been installed sort of in front of the vents, and this reduced the venting efficiency. So Russo and her colleagues in their paper and their analysis mentioned that this likely meant that the vent area of the vents that were supplied were not enough to properly vent this silo. In addition to that, the metal bolts that were holding together the bolted sections of the tank had quite a bit of corrosion on them. And these were found after the incident. They looked at them, found that the, the normal stress of the explosion was enough to, to fracture and fragment these bolts. Basically, the tank had been in disarray enough that the pressure they could withstand wasn't high enough to allow the venting to function as well. And you see this in the images from the explosion after it happened. The different panels of the bolted plate assembly are just torn in pieces along with the, the top that's gone off the silo. So there's a couple of key lessons from this explosion. One is a lack of prevention and protection measures in the silo. So they mentioned that there was no temperature sensor cable, there's no gas detector, um, no water or foam sprinkler systems, there's no gas inerting systems. All these could have helped and aided the firefighters when they responded to the silo fire, potentially stopped the explosion from happening, which ended up being deadly. There's also issues with equipment maintenance, in particular inspection of the tank bolts and plates for corrosion. This is something that's really important. We've seen this before where a silo has actually fallen down because of this type of corrosion and then caused a dust explosion. I think this was in New Mexico in a coal silo. This led to something around the order of, of I think, $20 million in damage from that silo explosion. We've seen other silos fail that have led to a dust explosion as well at uh, farms with handling grain at other areas. So that's a, a key area. You need to be looking at this. And then if you have a silo that's properly uh, protected with deflagration venting, but the bolt to construction or there's corrosion in the bolts and in the, the tank plates themselves, the question is, can it withstand the pressures needed for that deflagration venting to function properly? Um, in this case, it wasn't. Then the last and the final key lesson of disaster is really around firefighting efforts now, critical there when you're responding to a silo fire to have things like dust explosions and gas explosions in mind. And we covered this back in uh, episode 44 of the podcast, preventing storage silo explosions during firefighting efforts. 
This was on the back of a report that was released by Henry Person called Silo Fires, Fire Extinguishing and Preventative and Preparatory Measures um, with his group there. And that really is the seminal document at the moment on how to properly attack these sort of silo fires and preventing explosions. And I'll read through the, the 13 steps that I pulled out of, of that report that they, they says the best way to attack a, a silo fire. So step one is to identify the silo and fire type. So what kind of silo is it and what kind of fire is going on? could be an oxygen limiting silo. It could be a bolted tank construction. Uh, there's different things to consider on what kind of silo it is. Carry out initial risk assessment. What are the risks that are involved? Consider the risk of a gas or dust explosion. So this is the third step. And this is really important. If you think there is a risk of a dust or a gas explosion, which there is in a lot of silo fires, then you don't want to position the response team where they could be impacted by that explosion. So that includes if the roof were to become dislodged and fall off, you don't want that landing on a truck. We also don't want to have your team, your response team, on platforms where they can be knocked off and on areas where they can become injured if an explosion happens. Step four in the uh, episode 44 is close the silo to minimize air any air entrainment. Next, they did this at the first where they closed the, turn off the ventilation system in the silo or the aeration system, but then they opened up the hatches, which let the oxygen start flowing again. The next couple of steps in the Henry Person approach are around getting nitrogen gas to inert the silo, injecting it into the silo, um, assemble gas measuring equipment, applying foam to the headspace if necessary to put down the any active flames in the top of the silo. Once the silo is fully inerted then, which is step nine, you want to discharge the material from the bottom once the fire is under control. Last three steps they mentioned is to go slowly, plan for a long-term discharge operation. This can take days. Um, certainly can take hours and can take days to complete. Uh, for a large silo, it may even take weeks. Sort the discharge material that comes out and keep ejecting the gas during the discharge. You really want to keep that oxygen level below the explosive concentration of the gas and the dust in the silo so you can prevent an explosion there. So those are three key lessons then from this disaster. One was around lack of explosion prevention protection measures. The second was around equipment maintenance and inspection of the tank bolts and plates for corrosion. And the last was on coming up with a systematic approach for firefighting efforts. So that's it for this quick episode talking about a case study of insufficient venting during a sawdust silo explosion, how that led to a fatality. Again, this was from a report a paper that was published by Dr. Paula Russo and her colleagues in the Canadian Journal of Chemical Engineering. That's volume 95, pages 1721 to page 1729 published in March of 2017. I think I covered by um, Enrico Denzi at the Dust Safety Conference. In this episode, we talked about what the type of the facility was, what the silo looked like, how it operated, what happened during the explosion incident. We talked about what the most likely scenario was, and that was paralysis gas buildup in the headspace of the silo, which then was ignited. We highlighted issues with deflagration venting. One was having the, the bags placed too close to the vents, or the vents placed too close to the bags which then reduced the efficiency of the venting and likely meant that we didn't have enough vent area on the silo in the first place. But the bigger issue in this case was actually the strength of the silo itself because of corrosion wasn't able to withstand the pressures and that's what actually fractured in and blew apart the panels um, and took the top off the silo. And then we close with key lessons around lack of prevention and protection measures, equipment maintenance, um, and discussion of firefighter efforts and how this is really critical to addressing um, and stopping firefighters from being injured while they're responding to these type of silos. So if you have a silo at your facility, you have a silo at your site, you really want to be thinking, what are we going to do when we have a fire in our silo? 
what other steps are we going to take? Are our employees going to try to attack it? Um, are we going to call the fire department and maybe getting the fire department out there early to talk about what the options are, what the best ways to go about approaching a fire in the silo is so you can, A, not lose all your product, B, not knock down your silo, and, and C, and most importantly, not have an explosion that can injure you or injure your workers or injure the first responders. So I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. As always, I hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I appreciate everything you do in industries handling combustible dust around the world and continue to do in supporting our work at Dust Safety Science. Thank you.